Episode 12, Double Date. This episode is all about love and friendship. Rory is there for Lane. Lorelai is there for Suki. We see the beginning of Suki and Jackson's romantic journey. But that isn't the only love blossoming. Welcome to Stars Hollow. I'm your host, Rachel Foss. With me today is someone I've known for a long time but have only met in real life once, Rob Clow. Welcome, Rob. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Rachel. It was a pleasure. So I know Rob from comics. I was sort of an intern at the Center for Cartoon Studies because I had to drop out because I couldn't afford it. But I stayed there a year and that's how I kind of met Rob and he does all kinds of cool comic stuff. I've actually been featured on his website, Hilo Comics. He does all these awesome reviews and comics critiques and he's a really cool person. So I'm super excited to have him here today. So Rob, why don't you tell us what your relationship is with Gilmore Girls? My ex was watching it I just kind of sat down, kind of fascinated by its its weirdness. Then went back and watched all the early episodes. And I think I've watched the entire series about three times. My relationship with the series and its characters is one of love-hate. I'm fascinated by them. I'm fascinated by a lot of the writing. The evolution of the, the title of women, the Gilmore Girls, they kind of slowly turn into like horrible people as the, the series goes on in many ways. But the way they're presented never changes which i think is is very interesting a great love of many of the ancillary characters which is one of the reasons i like this episode so much because it features lane as an asian character there was no one else like her on tv at the time well the good news is is this is a pretty good lane episode so i'm excited to get into it with you are you ready to go let's do it let's do it This is Season 1, Episode 12, Double Date, written by Amy Sherman Palladino and aired on January 18th, 2001. We open on the Gilmore House, and even though I believe this is still supposed to be January, there is no snow, and there is freshly fallen leaves on the ground, and green grass, and green leaves on the trees. There should be snow on the ground. There should not be freshly fallen leaves in January. And there should not be green leaves on the trees. And this is something that is really annoying me about the set design in season one. I mean, it looked like spring. Well, the alarm goes off. Mom! And now we're inside and we hear Earn Enough For Us by the band XTC. XTC showing up yet again. Why was Amy so obsessed with this band? None of these songs are good. They are so dated. They sound so 2000. And they are in so many of these early Gilmore Girls episodes. Yeah, it was weird. I think she probably thought of it as being super cutting edge. Yeah, she's 55. I'm 51. This is clearly from like her high school college days. No, that's a good point to relate to her age. I'm just saying like as a teenager in 2000, I was the same age as Rory and nobody was listening to that band. And I don't know anybody who has listened to that band since. So I just feel like now it just sounds so dated. You know, there's other music that's used in this show that I think works. 
like Sam Phillips, who's used a lot in this show, she has like a much more classic kind of sound to her. And even though it's a little bit more 90s adult contemporary sounding, it doesn't sound so terrible now. Whereas XTC just sounds like 1999, which was not a good year for music. Well, as we open this scene in the house, we see as Rory's coming out of the door, there's something on the wall that I always thought was like a vintage calendar, but it's actually um, a very vintage looking kind of Dutch cottagey style shopping list, like a solid shopping list, which I thought is just a cute little touch to kind of give you a sense of who Lorelai Gilmore is. I do appreciate this scene a lot because it's all in one camera shot. I always appreciate it when things do that. I think they did it really well. They go and get coffee. I've also gotten coffee that way before where you're really impatient for the pot and you stick your mug underneath it and put the pot back. And they put their Pop-Tarts in the toaster. Rory pops the Pop-Tart in her mouth. They got their coffees. She grabs her bag. Rory helps tie Lorelai's tie. And then Lorelai throws that clip out of her hair, which I agree with Lorelai. I think that was a smart move. It's it's a beautiful scene. It establishes the relationship with barely any dialogue better than like entire other episodes did. So in the next scene, we are at the Gilmore house again, but it's evening now. Lane and Rory dump a bunch of CDs on top of the coffee table. On the coffee table, we immediately see Elle magazine. We also see a few CD albums, The Meat Puppets, the album Up on the Sun, The Best of Blondie, Craftwork, Young Marble Giants, Yoko Ono, And Lane says, wow, granddaddy, new album. That new album would have been The Software Slump, which was released in 2000. So if that's the new album Lane's referring to, it had to be that. And of course, Claudine Langer singing God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. Lane wants to ask Rory for a favor. She wants to know if Rory would be willing to set up a double date with her and Dean's friend, Todd. Lorelai is studying for one of her business class tests because she wants to do well and it's helping her to get a business degree so she can run her own in one day. But she's having trouble getting distracted because Walmart is boring. This is a great scene and there's a lot of pop culture to unpack. So Lorelai is studying what she says is the Walmart phenomenon. And that's something in business economics, especially in 2000, would have been referring to the way such a big corporation like Walmart comes into small towns and kind of wipes out the small businesses. She asks, who the hell is that anyway? Rory answers, Claudine Langer. Lorelai says, the chick who shot the skier? Wow, Renaissance woman. Claudine Langer is a French singer, dancer, and actress who was pretty popular during the 60s and 70s. In 1976, she was arrested and charged with fatally shooting her boyfriend, the American Olympic skier Vladimir Spider Savage. She claimed that the gun had just charged accidentally while Savage was showing her how it worked. The jury convicted her of negligent homicide and she was sentenced to pay a small fine and 
spend 30 days in jail. The conviction essentially ended Langer's career and she's lived out of the public eye ever since. I also recommend the episode of My Favorite Murder, episode number 75 called Breakfast Wine. They talk about Claudine Langer and that incident and what I learned from that podcast episode is that one of the reasons why she was convicted is because she said that he was showing her how to use the gun but he was shot in the back (laughs) so it's like oh I don't think so Claudine he was shot like across the room with his back toward you so kind of sounds like you murdered him and from the details I read about that case uh the prosecution badly mangled it the Rolling Stones wrote a song about her in this incident really Uh, do you know what the name of that song is and this song is Claudine. Oh. Was, that was a super deep cut to bring her up in this episode. I was impressed. No, I love that because I'm a big true crime fan. So every time something that I recognize from my true crime stories comes up, which comes up a lot in this show, my ear just goes, oop, ah, I know about that. So Rory is concerned about Lane's interest in Todd because of what happened with Rich Bloomfeld, which is something that we covered a few episodes ago in Love and War and Snow. Lane then says, well, I still have my key, which answers a few questions we had about how she broke into their house in that episode. So now we know Lane actually has her own key to the Gilmore house, which I think is super cute. But anyway, Rory agrees that she'll try to set something up for Lane and this dude, Todd. Lorelai just gives up trying and just wants to hang with the gals. In the next scene, we're at the Independence Inn. Lorelai is at the front desk studying and Michelle comes up because there's a problem. They're overbooked, but of course, Lorelai quickly figures out a solution and goes to get some coffee in the kitchen. So now we're in the kitchen and Suki yells, Necesito las hojas grandes, which is Spanish for I need the large sheets of paper. Suki is going to make a variation on baked Alaska. Lorelai suggests making the variation a baked Hawaii. This joke comes from the fact that Hawaii and Alaska joined the Union last. Hawaiian and Alaska both joined the United States in 1959. Alaska officially became a state on January 3rd, 1959. And Hawaii, which is our 50th state, became an official state on August 21st, 1959. That being said... The Baked Alaska is said to have been named to mark America's purchase of Alaska from Russia in 1867 and was first called the Alaska Florida Dessert to remark on the extremes of the heat and cold of the dish. The recipe for what we now know as Baked Alaska was first published and made available to the public in 1893. Oh, that's very cool. In the background, we can see some more of Suki's shelving that she has in the kitchen. I happen to notice she keeps a bag of Royal Bismati Rice, which is a brand I particularly like because they come in those really cool canvas bags. And just then, Jackson comes in with carrots and they both get super nervous, awkward, and jittery. It's because Suki asked out Jackson in the last episode but has not heard a word from him about it since. Lorelai says, wait, that conversation happened weeks ago. Weeks, really? What time tunnel are we in? Weeks ago? Two episodes ago? No, two episodes ago, it was Christmas. And one episode ago is when Suki asked out Jackson. And then 
it's still not even the Stars Hollow Winter Festival yet. So I, what month is it? I'm just so confused on what time tunnel we are living in in Stars Hollow. Lorelai says, okay, you can spend a lot of time sitting around and waiting for him to realize it's his turn, or you can just run with the wolves and make it your turn again. Lorelai is referencing Run with the Wolves, a collection of myths and stories that represent the wild woman archetype by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. I did not catch that reference. Wow. I have super laser vision when it comes to this. <laughs> I imagine doing a podcast has given you that especially. Oh, yeah. Lorelai convinces Suki to call Jackson and she leaves a message about dinner on Sunday. Suki wants to prepare something for when she talks to him, but accidentally starts writing with with a spatula spoon instead of a pen. In the next scene, we see Rory sitting on a bench reading the unabridged journals of Sylvia Plath. Dean comes out of school, sees her and walks over. Hey, is there anything in there about me? I don't know. Your name wouldn't be Lithium, would it? Rory makes this joke because Sylvia Plath, suffered through severe depression and ultimately died by suicide. Lithium is a psychiatric medication used to treat depression and specifically lithium is a named character in the book Rory is reading, The Journals of Sylvia Plath. Yeah, I thought that was a very in-character thing for Rory to read. The other interesting thing about Sylvia Plath, how much like Rory she was as a person, she was hyper-competent extremely intelligent, an overachiever to the max, did a lot of the work for both herself and her husband in like getting published. Dean, of course, is being creep teen Dean, as he always is. Rory informs Dean that Lane likes Todd, and she wants to arrange a double date with all of them. They talk in circles until Dean finally agrees, and he'll try to make it happen. And then they go back to kissing. In the next scene, Lorelai is extra frustrated about studying. Michelle gives her exactly the kind of pep talk you would imagine Michelle would give. Suki hops in, super excited because Jackson said he would love to go to dinner on Sunday to Schaeffler, which translates in French to at flower. So, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But unfortunately, his cousin Rune is in town. Suki who was nervous and under pressure, told Jackson that they could just all double date together. You know, Suki, Jackson, Rune, and Lorelai. Lorelai agrees with much hesitation and trepidation, but ultimately does this for her friend because for the very first time it's stated, her and Suki are best friends. And again, a nice little parallel with Rory and Lorelai going to bat for their best friends. Now all of the Gilmer girls are back at the house getting ready along with Suki and Lane. Lorelai yells for Diva Glam. Diva Glam is just a lipstick. A lipstick, um, but what am I, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Brand? Brand, yes, thank you. I can think of the word brand. (laughs) So I'm not a night person, so the later it gets in the evening, the more I lose my mind. Suki asks if it's too much. Lorelai says, nope, just enough to say, hey, sailor. Suki is freaking out. Lorelai is trying to talk her down and is teasing her, but is also being a really great friend here. You know, Suki is clearly a person who has anxiety. The way Lorelai deals with it is perfect because it's like, you know, she tries to keep it as lighthearted as possible and then, then tries to ground her. 
Downstairs, Lane is picking through Rory's closet while they listen to Holding On to the Earth by Sam Phillips. Rory says, what's mine is yours. And here's a fun fact that I learned while researching this episode. The phrase, what's mine is yours, though a very common saying, apparently originated from Shakespeare's play, Measure for Measure. Huh. The line that it comes from is, I have a motion, munch in ports, you're good where to if you're willing ear incline, what's mine is yours and what is yours is mine, so bring us to our place where we'll show what's yet behind that meets you all should know. Rory, I think, like you said, is also being a great friend here to Lane. And I think you were right. This is a really good episode that kind of just shows two really strong female friendships. And if the Bechdel test has taught us anything, we really need more of screen time of just showing women talking to each other. There is a degree in which it fails the test in that they're talking about the dates they're going on. However, in the context of this episode, the dates are like, they're part of the plot pipe. The important thing that we're seeing actually are these relationships. Lorelai brings her the glitter clips, which are so 2000. Lane asks, how do I look? Rory says, you look like you're too good for him. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Lane's response was, that's what I was going for. Which I think is important to see. Again, yeah. I was their age when this episode came out. So I'm glad that I saw that on television. I can't say for sure which impression it made on me specifically, but I'm super glad I had influences like that on me when I was a teenager. Suki finally comes downstairs wearing a kind of wacky dress, which does not match her hair. Because I, I feel like the dress and the cardigan look a little bit more casual and her hair is super fancy. Like they're going to like a gala. And it always felt weird to me. I will say, though, that it is better than Lorelai's outfit. You know, I get it. It's 2001 now. <laughs> So, of course, a satin leopard print pink button-up makes perfect sense. You know, Lauren Graham is an extremely beautiful woman, but Lorelai's taste is kind of tacky. Well, just then, there's a knock on the door. It's date time. Lorelai goes to open the door, and Jackson and his cousin are there. At minute 42.05, if you look over behind Jackson and Rune on the porch... What should be the Gilmore's yard that is open and normally has Lorelai's Jeep, followed by a row of trees, you actually see some lit up windows. That is a production trailer that unfortunately was overlooked and accidentally made it into the back of this scene. That's not quite as bad as a, a Starbucks cup making it into an episode of Game of Thrones. Oh my gosh, I remember but, uh... that. <laughs> Jackson and Suki are so adorable and nervous here. I love it. However, Rune is not thrilled. Rune is played by actor Max Perlich. Max has been acting since 1985. And one notable credit I want to point out that I found very interesting is that he plays one of the high school students named Anderson in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Huh. 
Well, Rune wants to have a sidebar with Jackson because Lorelai is way too tall, which I don't think is quite fair. Lauren Graham in real life is five foot seven, and Max Perlich in real life is five foot three. So, I mean, that's a that's a four inch difference. So, what do you think? Do you think we should give the benefit here that maybe Lorelai's just a little bit too tall? It's a weird dating thing. The conventional wisdom is that tall women would prefer not to date men shorter than them. That's not always true, but it's true enough. But the thing about it is Lorelai doesn't care. Lorelai doesn't need this to be like a love connection, just wants to like go out and have a nice evening. Rune references the bearded lady, which is a reference to the um, freak shows that were popular in the 1800s and early 1900s. Jackson, however, has to shut him up so that they can go to dinner. And so they all awkwardly get in the car and go to Shay Fleur. Rune is just super staring at Lorelai at dinner as if he has never seen a woman taller than him before, which I find hard to believe because if he is 5'3", then I'm going to assume most people that he comes across are going to be taller than him. So it shouldn't be that amazing. Rune also asked Lorelai what her shoe size is, and she says nine. I wear a nine and a half, so I just thought that was fun that I'm almost the same shoe size as Lorelai. Well, Suki wonders if the mussels are fresh. Jackson wonders where they get their carrots because the carrot crop this season has been very mealy. Even though he brought Suki a ton of carrots literally just a few days ago, Lorelai is trying to lighten the mood at the table, which ends up being a horrible disaster. She asks Rune where Rune comes from, as in the name. Rune is not getting it. It could, you know, at some point have been have come from the rune letters, which are Nordic letters that are used in divination and meditation. That's how I know the word rune. And side note, it's also one of Hermione Granger's favorite subjects at Hogwarts. I mean, the meaning you're talking about, that is the meaning. So it makes you wonder, where where is rune from? Finally, the waiter comes over the waiter is played by actor Joe Freya. And this is exciting because he will be another character later on in this show and show up as Joe from the Deer Hill Lodge in season three. Again, Suki wants... Oh, was that? I like it when shows like this are doing casting and maybe don't have something big for you early on, but they like you and think about you later when they're casting again. Mm -hmm. I mean, Amy definitely does that because she reuses a lot of characters in this show. Well, again, Suki wants to know if the muscles are fresh. Jackson wants to know exactly where the carrots are from. Rune wants to know if there's anything at this French restaurant that is not French. And Lorelai just needs lots of martinis. We cut over to the black, white, and red bookstore slash movie theater. Now, we talked about this location in the episode Love and War and Snow, which is the first time we see the black, white, and red. We know that in that episode, it was a Friday, and we know that in this episode, it's a Sunday. So we know that at least on Fridays and Sundays, the BWR becomes a movie theater at night. And I'll have to keep paying attention to see exactly 
when that becomes a movie theater, if it's every night or just on the weekends. And the movie at the BWR tonight is Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, a 1958B movie, which is about a wealthy woman who encounters a giant alien in his spacecraft, and it causes her to become a giantess and basically ruins her life. Rory, Dean, Lane, and Todd are all in line for the movie. Rory and Dean are giving Lane and Todd some space to get to know each other. Rory is very concerned if they're having a good time or not. Dean says, of course they're having a good time. They're not in prison or a medieval torture chamber. Which, Dean, that is not how I measure having a good time. Oh, Dean. But also, Dean is interesting because other than the fact that he's really good looking and nice, I was utterly baffled as to why Rory was interested in him. To a degree, that was enough. And to a degree, it also starts, it points out that Rory has unbelievably terrible taste in men. You know, I don't know if it's because of the relationship that she has with her father, this kind of like cool, good looking bad boy that that kind of like made her attracted to guys like that of various stripes for her entire life. But it sure seems that way. I can tell that you have never been a teenage girl because I, <laughs> I can tell you right now, the reason is because he was super cute and he liked her. That is all it took. Well, we swoop back to Lane and Todd. Todd is played by Lucas Bankin. Lucas has been acting since 1998 and has not received any serious recurring roles, but has been on many high-profile series from Grey's Anatomy to Mad Men. Lane is going on and on and on. She's talking specifically about Beck and how Beck is being an ironic rock star, and all these girls are fawning over him. But Lane and I are the same age here, and I knew about Beck back then. I don't remember anybody fawning over Beck. Beck was like kind of that weird indie rock star. There was no like fangirling for him. I personally didn't know anybody who was like, oh my God, Beck is so hot. Like I, I, I don't want to speak for the entire generation of that time. I'm just talking about my personal experience. I've never understood what Lane is talking about here. It almost kind of feels like she's projecting because I'm just saying in my personal experience, that was not something that was happening. Yeah, I, I kind of wondered about that. That's success was with, you know, hipster crowd. Right. Uh, and being uh, a, and like being a weirdo. Yeah. This was still big into the boy band era of music. There are plenty of other people that, you know, girls had crushes on. I've never understood that. But I do relate to Lane when she talks about the Foo Fighters and specifically mentions the acoustic version of Everlong. You know, I have older sisters. My older sisters were a little bit cooler than me. Well, they were a lot cooler than me. But, you know, my sisters were a lot older than me. So they were in high school when the Foo Fighters first started getting pretty big in the 90s. And Whatever my older sisters were listening to, I wanted to listen to also. So I started listening to the Foo Fighters pretty early on, and I still love them to this day. I think that Dave Grohl is one of my favorite humans on earth. (laughs) 
She also mentions she's really gotten into the Velvet Underground and Nico. Nico also sang on the Velvet Underground debut album, The Velvet Underground and Nico. And that's not something I was listening to then. That's the band I got into later. But I definitely felt better about it than Todd did, who has absolutely nothing to say on the subject or really any other subject. There's an amazing gag in this scene where she asked him about Fugazi. And the fact that it's a Fugazi t-shirt is hilarious because Ian Mackay, the lead singer and basically the man behind Fugazi mostly, it's his band, and then Discord Records, punk ethic supreme never wanted any kind of ancillary merchandise for his band. He hated the capitalization. So like the fact that he's wearing a Fugazi t-shirt is hilarious. The only thing Todd does have to say for himself is that he's thinking about focusing his electives on gym. So he only has to take four classes his senior year. Now all the girls are getting concerned. And Dean says, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. We work on our bikes together. He has the good tools. This is the first reference that we see to Dean admitting that he does, in fact, have a motorcycle. See episode seven for more on that topic. We go back to Lane and we see that Lane is really starting to regret this decision. Poor Lane. We cut back over to Schaeffler. Suki is going on about personal stories to her and Lorelai, much to the sadness of Jackson and to the extreme boredom of Rune. Jackson is also drinking beer out of a very large wine glass and... For a fancy restaurant, that is just wrong. Even at a fancy restaurant, they would know which glass to properly put various and certain beers in. And as a beer connoisseur, I am personally offended by this restaurant. Lorelai sipping on her martini while Rune begins cutting off all the heads of the butter swans. Lorelai suggests that her and Suki go powder their noses so that she can talk to Suki about what is happening at this dinner table. She hasn't said a word to Jackson all night. Suki is super nervous. Lorelai says, you're nervous. You don't have some guy staring at you like he's Cher and you're the kid from Mass. For the younger generations out there, this is not in reference to Jim Carrey's The Mask, but 1985 film Mask, starring Cher and Eric Stoltz, about a teenage boy with a facial deformity and the struggles between him and his mother, based on the true story of Rocky Dennis. Suki is just so uncomfortable at this dinner. She's nervous because Jackson looks so good. And I agree, I think Jackson looks very good in this episode. So Lorelai just wants her to relax. They're going to take down that crazy fancy hair and just go to Luke's, get some burgers, chat a little bit. Well, we are back at the black, white, and red. Lane is trying one last attempt at getting any kind of good anything out of Todd. She asks him if he has a favorite movie. Todd finally gets really excited and says, yes, Beethoven, the one with the dog. Apparently, there is a scene in which there is a dog in the background with a huge cabbage in its mouth, and he thinks it is the funniest thing in the world. This did not help Todd's case with Lane. 
Todd likes what he likes. Hey, you know, I'm not saying that what Todd likes is wrong. I'm just saying he's not right for Lane. That's all. We're back at Luke's. Lorelai, Suki, Jackson, and Rune walk in the door. There's a gentleman sitting reading a book, but Rune does not like this place at all. Lorelai walks up to the counter to get some menus, some coffee, and an anvil. Lorelai is alluding to the Looney Tunes cartoons when Wile E. Coyote would drop anvils on the Roadrunner, but of course, would ultimately himself get hurt. Lorelai asks Luke if she can sit there at the bar for a minute because Jackson and Suki are on their very first date. Luke says, oh, it seems to be going well. Lorelai says, I would wear blue to the wedding. Okay, anyone who does not want a spoiler alert right now, fast forward 30 seconds. Because spoiler alert, Lorelai does, in fact, wear blue to Suki and Jackson's wedding. Oh, that's a great catch. I love the banter here between Luke and Lorelai just because it is so natural. I love what you said earlier about how this episode kind of showcases the early stages of various relationships because Luke and Lorelai have known each other for years, but we're only now seeing the very first buds of the potential romance that is not out in the open yet at all. But I love seeing this scene because it really shows how natural and what good chemistry Luke and Lorelai have with each other. And it's such a simple conversation, but it's really lovely. It is. And of course, you know, the very first scene, the very first episode sees Lorelai go into Luke's, you know, with the implication that they, they have known each other for a long time. And as Rory starts to find, you know, her first love, it's interesting that in parallel, Lorelai is actually starting to think about this as well for herself, finally, after, well, you know, 16 years, basically. Lorelai says, Luke, this is an exceptional good cup of coffee. That's because Luke added a little bit of nutmeg. Lorelai says, that's very Richard Simmons of you. Richard Simmons is a very famous fitness guru who's all about being fit, weight loss, and moving around. He's super perky and very flamboyant, so that's what I'm assuming Lorelai is referring to, which is not one of her finest moments. This is one of those moments that I like to bring up in this podcast because, again, this show aired in 2001. We were living in a very different world in 2001. We loved Richard Simmons, first of all. Richard Simmons is a very beloved public figure. He has since retired from the public eye and is very very low key, but he was always beloved. Like he was a national star, but just in the world that we live in now in 2020, when I see those slight little, it's not blatant homophobia, but it's almost like a joke about being gay. And the thing is, is that Richard Simmons has never 
publicly announced his sexuality in any way. So there's just the assumption just based on his personality and character because he was really perky. He was a super positive person. He was kind of like a tiny guy, like short and uh, small, but he had a really big personality and was very loud and very excited. She's really kind of making this very subtle undermining joke about men who are flamboyant, men who are perky. It follows it up with Luke saying, well, what can I say? Chicks like a guy with a feminine side. Again, equating that to Richard Simmons, that in order to be a man who's perky and excited and flamboyant, you must be very feminine or you must have this like gay undertone. I just don't think this is one of Lorelai's finer moments. And I I totally get that this was 2001. I'm sure that joke was really funny back then, but I don't think it's funny now. You know, I grew up, Richard Simmons was like a big thing. And, you know, the unsaid thing was that Richard Simmons was gay. But it was like also in the way that a lot of um, flamboyantly gay men are, are tolerated in the culture just so long as they don't actually say it. Mm-hmm. Um, Liberace is the classic example. And so... Her saying that had, like, it landed in the sense that it was a reference that people would understand. Mm-hmm. It was just, like you said, an unusually crass reference, uh, and even a dated one at that time, because Richard Simmons at that time had not really been that famous in the same way for well over um, a decade. Like, he was kind of passe by then a little bit or he would appear on the David Letterman show doing wacky things but like it was deliberately like oh here's Richard Simmons being wacky as opposed to like here's cultural icon Richard Simmons yeah like her her making a comment like about his manhood was weird um and he knew she was making a little dig about his manhood. Um, and at least to his credit, uh, you know, didn't get angry or whatever, but it's kind of like played along. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, I think that Luke is very comfortable in his identity and sexuality and also respects other human beings in their own identities, which is why he responds like that. And we see that with Luke throughout this show, that he is kind of a very, very solid person. Well, Rune has had enough. Sunday night is almost over and he wants to go bowling. Rune is being a fucking asshole, but Jackson is being a little chicken shit. Suki luckily overcomes her nervousness and fears and has to beg Jackson to stay on their date. Jackson, you know, I love them and Suki together and I'm glad they get together. But if someone, if someone in the middle of our date was questioning whether to stay on the date or was going to leave me on our date and go run off with someone else, That would be the last date we would ever go on. I'm glad it worked out here. It's good that Suki kind of overcame her nervousness, but that's some shit. Jackson needed to step up and actually show Suki that he wanted to be on this date. 
Yeah, and that speaks to something you talked about earlier, where you have two really insecure people. Why would anyone ever be interested in me? While clearly demonstrating that they were interested in each other in multiple ways, that would have been a nice moment for Jackson to actually step up. I don't think he wanted to leave because he wanted to go with Rune. I think he wanted to leave because he was just like, man, this is, this is totally fucked. A character detail with Rune that I love. Throughout this episode, he never once took off his cap or his scarf or even opened up his coat. Almost as if he always had one foot out the door. He was constantly, yeah, and it's and it's a weird, like, character tick. Um, it's like he didn't want to be here and he wasn't going to, like, relax one bit. But that was also just like, he had his clear presentation of self. And the, the funny thing about this character is that... Uh, possibly because he is short um as a way of overcompensation he has a really heightened sense of like himself yeah and like he clearly expects jackson to go along with him and when he says well i'll see you at home maybe as though rude not coming back would be a bad thing and that was a threat (laughs) I i thought that was very very funny like who does this guy think he is? Well, Rune finally leaves, and Lorelai calls out to him, Bye, Loon! Alluding to the <laughs> Loon slang, Loon is someone you would call someone who is crazy or insane or loony. Again, Lorelai not being very PC here. A Loon, of course, is a kind of bird. Yeah, but that's not what she's saying, and you, she's referring to Rune as. Jackson and Suki are alone and can really be on their date. Lorelai says, just make three cheeseburgers and send two over there. I'll stay here with you. Luke says, what? I have to watch that guy walk out on you and now I have to watch you eat alone? Lorelai says, I'm not eating alone. You're here. Luke says, yeah, but I'm working. Lorelai responds, yeah, but after three cheeseburgers, you're done. Unless you're expecting Elijah to stop by. Lorelai is referencing the Jewish Seder tradition where a cup of wine is always set aside in honor of the prophet Elijah. According to tradition, Elijah will one day arrive as an unknown guest to herald in the advent of the Messiah. Well, instead, Luke says fine and brings out a deck of cards. Five card draw. This is basically a simple, quick form of poker. And based on Lorelai's reaction, you can tell that they've done this before. Also, Luke, you got three burgers to make. What are you doing playing cards? Go make the fucking burgers. <laughs> this scene is a Lauren Graham masterclass of how to use gesture and expression to act. She has a particular way she curls up her lip when she's flirting, the way that she shrugs her shoulder. And when she's talking about the beginning of the relationship, the way that she, like, touches Luke's arm. I saw that, but not the other stuff. And that's something I want to try to pay attention to moving forward. And at the end of this, they're so close. Luke is just about to say the magic words when Mrs. Kim sees Lorelai in the window and runs in screaming about where Rory and Lane are. Lorelai tells Mrs. Kim that they're at a movie with Rory's boyfriend, Dean. So now Mrs. Kim knows that Lane totally lied to her and she's worried that they could be smoking or drinking or doing drugs. They're at the movies referring to the black, white, and red bookstore. 
I doubt they're going to have drugs there. According to Lorelai, they don't even have the real red vines. And this is the second time red vines are referenced in this show. And we had like a big debate about it the past episode about red vines. Uh, what was the nature of the, the debate? What's better, red vines or Twizzlers? Yep. And my guest, Ira, chose red vines and I said, no, Twizzlers. I definitely prefer Twizzlers to red vines. I am agnostic in this debate. Well, Mrs. Kim is quite upset. Although I will say her hair looks really good in this scene. Later on in the show, I don't necessarily love Mrs. Kim's look, but I do like it here. Well, she runs out the door, so Lorelai has to chase after her. Luke is left on his own, sad, frustrated, and forever pining. Back over at the black, white, and red movie night, everyone's walking out, the movie's over, and they all say they liked the movie, even Todd, which is surprising that he had an opinion about it. Todd wants to keep the night going because he's having a good time. He suggests they go get ice cream, eat it real fast, get that freezy brain. Lane is done. She's had enough. She's not into it. She wants to bail. And she starts saying her excuse. It's so tempting, but well, saved or dead by the bell. Mrs. Kim is running up the sidewalk. Y'all are caught. Mrs. Kim yells at Lane in Korean. She says, Takishi Okata, which means shut up, go. Seeing Lane's mom be mad at her is something we'd see a lot. It's interesting that we see like the strains of the Lorelai Rory relationship where Lorelai has to like put on her mom pants, actually, you know, sternly talk to her and tell her boyfriend, yeah, you're not calling later, dude. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a cool conversation because you see these two different moms coming up and they're mad that both of their daughters had lied to them. Mrs. Kim's reaction is to scream at Lane in Korean and tell her to shut up and go. Whereas Lorelai's reaction is to have a conversation about being honest with each other. And I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a parent, but I can go ahead as a human being, make the statement, having a conversation about being honest with each other probably works better. I have to subvert to your parental expertise because, again, I'm not a parent, but I was a kid. Sure. And I definitely remember not being listened to or being able to have that conversation with a parent. And I, I think that it it definitely didn't make things better for either party. And I think it it's about Lorelai too, because Lorelai never had conversations with her parents, or she did, but they didn't go very well. Yeah, and it's very clear that, like, when she sees Lane, she feels bad because she sees herself. When she was a child, she didn't have agency, she had expectations. And that's just the way it was. And when you're in a situation where neither side is willing to compromise in any way, What you get is what happened with Lorelai and her mom, which was a broken relationship. One thing that I do think is interesting is that although Lorelai has terrible boundaries herself and handles things a little bit differently, I really love that she respects Mrs. Kim's boundaries with her own daughter. That's a really cool attribute in Lorelai's credit. Lorelai tells Rory, I know that Mrs. Kim and Robert Duvall and the great Santini share a striking resemblance, but she is Lane's mom. The Great Santini is a 1979 drama film about pilot Lieutenant Colonel Wilbur Bull Meacham, played by 
Robert Duvall, known as the Great Santini by his fellow Marines. The comparison in this scene comes from Meacham's character keeping a very strict household and his children who are accustomed to this kind of rigid lifestyle are also really sensitive and are constantly trying to win their father's love and respect. And this is, of course, compared to Mrs. Kim and Lane's relationship as Lane is a pretty good kid. I mean, she does break out eventually and and starts doing her own thing but she never does anything bad she just doesn't do the things that mrs kim wants her to do at minute 3335 if you look behind lorelei and rory as they're walking down the sidewalk behind them you can see the twickham house the twickham house will come up as a central storyline in a later season In the next scene, we see Rory climbing up a tree and knocking on a window. We see that it belongs to Lane. Rory says, what's up, Rapunzel? Rory is referring to Rapunzel, the nursery rhyme, comparing Lane's situation being grounded and stuck at home because of her demanding mother to the well-known fairy tale character Rapunzel, who is imprisoned by her mother, just like Lane. Rory just wants to check in on Lane because she hasn't heard from her since the quote-unquote incident. The words convent and Siberia were thrown around. Lane is all in all glad that it happened. Just like you said, she doesn't actually regret that this happened. And one of the reasons why is because she realized she's not in love with Todd. He is, and I am paraphrasing in my own words here, about as interesting as a teaspoon. (laughs) Well, and it's funny, the cadence of his voice and like his interest in like eating a bunch of ice cream is the implication is Todd is a stoner. <laughs> I didn't even think about that, but it kind of makes sense. He does have that vibe, doesn't he? Rory promises Lane that she won't tell anybody she went on a date with Todd. What's fun is that this is not the last time that we will see Rory climbing up a tree in order to go to someone's window. Apparently that's um pretty big in Rory's world. <laughs> We cut over in the next scene to Kim's Antiques, which technically was the last scene as well, but it's another day and this time we're inside. Mrs. Kim is arguing with a customer because he knocked over a lamp and broke it. She's pulling the, you break, you buy, which I totally understand. I'm on Mrs. Kim's side, you know, in this. If you're walking through an antique store, you got to be really careful and you got to be responsible for what happens. In a side note, the man in that shop is played by actor John Balma. And I just want to give a shout out because I personally recognize him right away as Barney from Parks and Rec. For any Parks and Rec fans out there, Barney is the accountant at the accountant firm that loves the amazing accounting jokes. (laughs) Wow, what a good catch. Uh, The life of a character actor, huh? Lorelai comes in and wants to talk to Mrs. Kim about what happened and kind of give her support for Lane. Lorelai promises that Rory has never lied to her and will never lie to her again. Oh, Lorelai. Oh, Lorelai, you poor, simple, simple woman. Just you wait. Also, in the background of Mrs. Kim's 
room there, um, it, there's a sign on the wall that says the kitchen is closed on Sundays. So we can assume that this is the kitchen, but it there's really not any room to make food. So curious what's going on there. Lorelai is trying to compromise with Mrs. Kim about Lane. Lane is a really, really good kid. And I would say Lane is definitely a better kid than I was. I did some pretty weird stuff in high school. And Lane is pretty chill in terms of what she did. Although I think the things we did were similar. I never did anything bad. I was a pretty good kid in high school. But I definitely did some things that I don't think my parents would have loved. <laughs> If they found out. There is one time, actually, this is a pretty lame moment that I did have when I was in high school. I was, I grew up just outside of Flint, Michigan, and there was a club there called the Flint Local. It was the local punk DIY type space. It was a shithole. There was no drugs, no alcohol allowed, and it was all ages. So, of course, it was the perfect place for really crappy teenage pop punk bands to play. And we would go there on the weekends and watch these crappy bands play. And I never told my parents that's what I did. And to this day, they have no idea. Unless they listen to this podcast, they have absolutely no idea that I used to do that on the weekends. Because I always told them I was going to the mall or going to hang out with so-and-so. I was really going to the local every weekend. I was super nerdy up until like my senior year, which is when I started like dating and like we knew someone who knew like about this abandoned building that we could go hang out in, which was not something that I would ever have done before. But I was like, sure, why not? There was a lot of sure, why not in my senior year that. But did your parents ever find out about your your wild excursions? No. <laughs> Well, the one thing that Mrs. Kim and Lorelai can agree on is that they both don't want Lane to turn out like Lorelai. They also just want their daughters to be safe. And this is a pretty nice moment between the two. They're very, very different mothers. They're very different people. But this is a really nice connection that they finally have between two mothers who just want to look out for their daughters. And Lorelai really does care about Lane. And I think on some level, she cares about Mrs. Kim too, because she's Lane's mom. So I love this scene because it really shows that they are attempting to have this kind of neighborly daughters, our best friends, we have to have a relationship kind of relationship. Right. I love the end of that scene. Because even though Mrs. Kim doesn't acquiesce in any way, shape, or form to Lorelai, if you look at her body language, you can see her shoulders drop and her head drop, and it's realized Lorelai is right. I agree. Emily Kuroda is a wonderful actress. Yeah, she is. And you know what I just realized? You are the first parent I've had on my podcast. So congratulations. Oh, there you go. You're like my first parental perspective, so. There you go. The secret is that no parent really ever knows what they're doing, ever. And if they claim they are, they're lying. <laughs> well, in the next scene, the Gilmore girls walk very excitedly into Luke's. Lorelai got an A- minus on that test, and the annoying boy behind her only got a B+. Plus. Ha! They talk about Suki and Jackson's dating. Apparently, they've already been out on 
three dates. But Lorelai is kind of over it. So if she doesn't stop with the farming and gardening talk, Lorelai is going to Romeo and Juliet them both. Lorelai is referencing the end of the play by Shakespeare, Romeo and Juliet, where the two main characters drink poison and die by suicide, alluding to the fact that she's on the edge of poisoning both Suki and Jackson because they keep talking about gross farming practices. And one thing I do want to say, I I just love the fact that Melissa McCarthy and Suki's character, they are plus size women. Just in American society, we do not put a lot of romantic, attractive value on plus size women. I am a plus size woman. Obviously, I don't feel that way. And there's a lot of people, of course, who don't feel that way. And those things are changing. Having that conversation about body positivity and accepting all body types. But in the year 2001, when this episode aired, that was not a conversation that we were having a lot. And to see such a cool and vibrant woman who is plus size, not only be an amazing character, and she's very well-written, complex character, she's very cool, she has a really great career, and she gets to fall in love at like the beginning of the show and have this romance kind of taken care of for her, I just think is a really beautiful thing. I think it was very important to put that in a popular show and have it be on the air on television. I completely agree. It's always why Suki was a favorite character of mine and why I always like rooted for Melissa McCarthy in general. And then the next thing I know, she's like, the biggest comedic star in the world. I also liked that in that relationship she had with Lorelai, it's kind of almost a romantic reversal. Lauren Graham, you know, is is a extremely beautiful woman. And in many ways, especially at then, had like that idealized, you know, she looked like a model. She was tall and thin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in this episode, Rune is repulsed by her. The romantic center of this uh, episode is is Suki. Yeah. Suki's the one who, like, gets the guy. Rory gets a page from Lane, which is exciting because Lane was under a no-contact, confined-to-her-house punishment. So Rory very excitedly grabs her mom's cell phone and runs out the door because she does not want to incur the wrath of Luke. At minute 39.34, if you look over Lorelai's shoulder, you'll see the same employee that we've pointed out in the past episode. He's never named or mentioned, but apparently he works at Luke's. Once Rory leaves, Lorelai looks over at Luke with a little bit of something in her eye. Rory calls Lane, and it's very exciting news because Lane can now leave the front door and go as far as the sign. Back at the diner, Luke and Lorelai chit-chat about what happened with Lane and Rory the other night. And once again, ugh, they're so close. But ultimately, Luke chickens out and just says, you missed out on kicking your ass at poker. And the moment is past. They both were just on the verge of wanting Luke to ask Lorelai out and it just didn't happen. So now they both have to very quickly pretend like that's not what was just about to happen. Yeah, and again, body language, you can see when he says when he says before I had a chance to and when he hesitates, she darts her head forward just slightly and then darts it back. Uh. Like, she almost does like a a full double take. 
but at least he does say maybe we do it again sometime kind of rebating the hook yes before anything else can happen you know rory bursts in and I love that because at least there's like a little tiny nugget that she can hold on to, that they both can hold on to. Also, let's talk about a few things in going on in this scene. Number one, Lorelai's top, because that outfit is something else. Like that is an interesting shirt. Nothing about Lorelai is subtle ever. Also, if you look over Luke's shoulder on the walls, you see some posters and you assume that they're left over from when it was a hardware store but they're really funny because they all resemble kind of an old-timey western saloon type font style poster on all of them but the only one i can really read is the one that says tobacco and marshall sale but i just thought that was really interesting decor choice and never noticed it before but it really struck out to me this time and like you said right in that moment roy runs in she gives Lorelai back her cell phone because she's gonna go to Kim's Antiques right across the street because Lane is allowed outside for 15 minutes so she's gonna stand in the street and yell at her. I love this because you know like you said this I think is an episode about relationships and more importantly friendship. The friendships between all of these women and this scene in particular shows us how much Lane and Rory love each other. They haven't been able to see each other just for a couple days. And Rory is so excited just to be able to see her best friend across the street. And that's really what best friends are all about. Well, Rory leaves and Lorelai's left at the table. She looks over at Luke and the episode ends. And there we are. What'd you think of this episode? I like it. I I like all the elements we discussed earlier. The fact that it's a Lane heavy episode. That's an episode about friendship. It felt real. It felt like there was a lot of, even when the characters made questionable choices, there's a lot of stuff in here that was definitely relatable. I appreciated that. Yeah, I like that. Do, 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 do. Now we're at the arts and entertainment shelf. This is the segment where I list all of the music, books, movies, and TV referenced in each episode. In this episode, we have a lot of music reference, so get ready. XTC, the song Earn Enough for Us, Blondie, Craftwork, The Meat Puppets, Young Marble Giants, Yoko Ono, The Beatles, Claudine Langer, Granddaddy, Sam Phillips and the song Holding On to Earth, Beck, Foo Fighters, specifically the song Everlong, The Velvet Underground, Nico, and Fugazi. I know this is a pretty long list, so I'm happy to repeat it all out. Who on this list are your favorites or who you hate or that you care about, that you don't care about? What are the bands you're not familiar with? Uh, what was it, the Young Marble Giants? Mm-hmm. Not at all. I know XTC, never a favorite of mine. Blondie, of course, great classic band. Legend, Kraftwerk. Yeah, I mean, and really cool the way that, like, they blended pop and funk. Just great. And that's, that's like, that's the soundtrack of my youth. The Yoko Ono thing was interesting, because that's a, that's a very popular topic of discourse today. 
talk about and reclaim Yoko Ono as an artist in her own right and musician in her own right. Beck always enjoyed Beck. He's an interesting, weird figure because he's somewhere between being like, you know, an alternative star with a little bit of crossover appeal. But I wouldn't necessarily call him a pop star. And the Velvet Underground is a kind of band where virtually anyone who's like into music in a serious way, I feel like goes through a Velvet Underground phase. Sure. <laughs> where it's like, it's like you, you've got to listen and hear and hear what's going on. They didn't sell a lot of records, but everybody who listened to their early records formed their own band. I like lots of their songs and still listen to them today. Plenty of songs that I'm like, mm, no thanks. Yeah. About the Foo Fighters, you know, because I always think of them as like, oh yeah, they're that band after Nirvana. I was like, oh yeah, that's what Dave Grohl did after Nirvana. But of course, I mean, they certainly have like their own highly respectable catalog and are very important in their own right. Well, for me, I've let my feelings about XTC be known. I just don't like it. And I cannot wait until it stops being in this show all the time. Blondie, I didn't, I'm younger, but I love Blondie. I think Blondie is legend and I'll never get tired of listening to Blondie. Craftwork I know about, but they're just not my bag. The Meat Puppets and the Young Marble Giants never heard their music. I have no idea. I think it's interesting you brought that up about Yoko Ono because I have read more new things about how they are rethinking and relooking at how things happened with John and Yoko Ono and, and the Beatles and that relationship. And a lot of people now are on Yoko Ono's side. And I do agree. I, I respect her just as an artist individually. I've never really been a band of the Beatles. There's like a handful of songs that I think are fine, but they're not a band I love or gravitate to. I definitely am more of a Beach Boys kind of girl, which is why I like the song that Claudine Langer sings, because she sings God Only Knows, one of my favorite Beach Boys songs. And then Granddaddy, I, I do know. I listened to them a little bit when I was in high school, but I never like super got into them. Sam Phillips, of course, is in this show. Beck was the same way. I knew about Beck. Beck was around and all my friends were listening to Beck and like I, I pretended to like Beck, but it was just because it was like the cool hipster indie thing to do in 2003 when I was graduating high school and entering college to be like, y'all Beck. But I didn't really care about Beck. Um, the Foo Fighters I did legitimately care about for a very long time. Their music is in my karaoke go-to song rotation. I still, you want to know what I think about when I think of the Foo Fighters. And I know that this isn't really what they do now, but I will always love them because of how amazing their music videos were. They just had the best music videos that really stood out to me. And seeing my sisters listen to this music and being like, okay, well, I'll, I'll like try it out. And then watching these like really weird or really funny music videos that didn't really match the songs, but they were so creative. It really made me love them. And then just individually, Dave Grohl, just as a person, is just a human being that I really personally love and admire. So I have just a really deep, long love for the Foo Fighters. Fugazi I never got into, although I love punk music, but Fugazi specifically. The Velvet Underground I got into later, and I really only got into them because of Nico. And the only reason why I really got into Nico is because of Wes Anderson films and the Royal Tenenbaums. 
sometimes like on a nice chill Sunday morning, not to make that a pun about the Velvet Underground, but (laughs) (laughs) getting a cup of coffee and throwing on a Velvet Underground record and just like chilling out. That, that is just like a nice moment I can see. Although I really like the music from Velvet Underground, I really hate Lou Reed. I don't like Lou Reed. I don't like his voice. I don't like him as a person. So next on our list is books. The books referenced in this episode are Run with the Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes, The Unabridged Journals of Sylvia Plath, edited by Karen Kukel, and Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. So I know we mentioned these books a little bit as we were talking about the episode, but do you have any strong feelings? Like, even though Romeo and Juliet is the most famous Shakespeare play, do you just absolutely hate that play? Or is that a play you like? It's fine. It, to me, it's not. I mean, it's just, it's it's famous, but it's it's less interesting than some of his others. Romeo and Juliet specifically will always hold a special place in my heart because it is the only Shakespeare play I memorized from beginning to end. And the reason why I did that was because, again, acknowledge my age and my timeline. I was young, but the perfect amount of preteen when Titanic came out, which means that is when Leonardo DiCaprio erupted in our hearts and minds. And one of his biggest films before that was Romeo and Juliet. And I loved that film. We watched that a lot growing up. Great soundtrack. But of course, because Leonardo DiCaprio was in Romeo and Juliet, I had to memorize Romeo and Juliet. I've never seen it, actually. What? Anyway, that's enough of Romeo and Juliet. I know we talked a little bit about Sylvia Plath. I know you you actually shared a lot about Sylvia Plath that I never knew. So I'm assuming you've read a lot of her work. I've read a little. I'll be honest, that information. Do you know the work of the cartoonist Summer Pierre? No. She's a, a, a really good autobiographical cartoonist, but she wrote a long story about reading these letters. And I've since read like a little bit of her poetry. There's a real richness to it. The last book is Run with the Wolves by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. Have you ever even heard of this book before? I had heard of it. I've never read it. I actually don't know exactly what it's about. Well, I've never heard of it before, but I really want to read it now after kind of reading up on it for this podcast because it, it's literally just a collection of stories and myths and uh, characters throughout legends and history that are focused on the wild woman archetyped and I I would be very interested in that. Well, last on our list because there is no television mentioned in this episode. So last on our list is movies. The movies referenced in this episode are Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, Mask, Beethoven, and The Great Santini. I personally from this list am very sad to say <laughs> That the only movie I have seen is Beethoven. Beethoven. Yes, but it makes sense. Like the kids' movie from the 90s. And I was a kid when that movie came out, and we, as a family, watched it and rented it, and I watched it. Sure. I mean, cute dog movie. Why not, right? Yeah. I have seen the other three, but not Beethoven. Well, there we go. <laughs> Mask is, is excellent. Cher is fantastic in it. Eric Stoltz is fantastic in it. 
it was like one of her first big acting breakthroughs, in fact, that people like took her seriously. It's it's really interesting. It's definitely a good character piece. Attack the 50-Foot Woman is awesome. It's in the vein of a lot of other movies of that time. It's mm-hmm. kind of like Adam Age paranoia film, yeah. as I would dub them. Yeah, it's definitely listed as a sci-fi B-movie. I've definitely seen movies like it, but I've never seen this one. And it's good because, I mean, kind of turning like this the trope of the monster into like being a woman, having image and things like that as like part of her deal was was kind of was an interesting take Mm -hmm. to a degree. It was also interesting to see like this angry woman kind of rampaging across the screen, expressing her anger in a way didn't really see women do. So degree, it's been a film that's about fear of women. Yeah, I remember. So in film school, when we watched Invasion of the Body Snatchers, we talked about why that was important for the time that it came out like socially and politically. That's why we were talking about it in film school because it was about movies and their imprint on the society happening around them. A lot of science fiction at that time kind of tapped into that. Science fiction in general kind of was in that vein with regard to social commentary as like its dominant thing until Star Wars came out. Oh, interesting. I'm very interested to hear about the great Santini because you didn't really say anything about it when we were talking about it. In particular, it really goes to this trope of the imperious father figure who wants to run his family with the same precision as the military and treats his children, not like children, but like enlisted men that he has to break. This is a movie I have never heard of. Great Santini was a pretty big vehicle for Robert Duvall, who was one of the major actors of that era, but he only tends to get remembered in that era right now for The Godfather. Yeah, I'm a part of that where I also tend to ignore that film timeline. I'm not really that interested in the movies that came out between pretty much 1965 and 1980, unless it had Audrey Hepburn in it. You know what I mean? I didn't like what they were doing with film. There's this whole thing in film how they kind of backtracked once we got Technicolor. The same thing happened when we got sound. Like once we got sound in film, the film quality started to degrade. Once we got color in film... The film quality to start to degrade. I don't like 70s fashion, so that's not appealing to me. I feel like it's very masculine and that those films tend to be very male-dominated. I'm not someone who's very interested in that. There's no reason why I would ever watch The Great Santini, because what is that? It's about a macho man trying to be manly. It's like, that doesn't appeal to me at all. Like, it's never going to cross my path. No, you're, you're not wrong. And I mean, that period is also, it's this interstitial period between the end of this old studio system mm-hmm. and the rise of the blockbuster. Yes. But it is nine o'clock. So I say we wrap it up, but man, that was a really fun discussion. Rob, I know you from comics, obviously, but you were such an amazing guest for this episode because you are an audiophile just like Lane. Like I learned so much and I love having that discussion with you about film. I love talking about film. I miss being able to talk about film. I miss being able to go to the movies. (laughs) That was a really great time. Thank you so much for being my guest on this today. I know this was quite a few hours of your time, and I really appreciate it. It was so much fun. 
Rob is an awesome comics reviewer and commenter and critiquer, and he knows a lot of cool people. To hear more from Rob, check out Hilo Comics. That's Hilo, H-I-G-H-L-O-W, at blogspot.com. You'll actually see one of my reviews for one of my comics on there, but also make sure to check out Rob's newer project, Comics and Criticisms, at soulrad.co that's s-o-l-r-a-d dot c-o thank you so much again rob uh my pleasure and uh happy to come back anytime this has been welcome to stars hollow the podcast for more episodes make sure to subscribe to spotify itunes google Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts for extra fun find us on instagram at at stars hollow pod